0: What happens with regard to climate in 2050 will be dictated to by what happens between now and 2030, according to the Chairman of the Board of Farmers for Climate Action, Charlie Prell. The group released a media statement on April 26, Farmers deserve certainty on net zero target. And Charlie, the Chairman of the Board, as I said earlier, was kind enough to have a chat with Climate Conversations. About that document. First, we'll have some formalities. Then we'll listen to our chat with Charlie. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean, and I'm coming to you from Shepparton in Victoria, Australia, from the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I've been involved with the practical side of the climate conversation since the early 2000s. That's attending lectures and reading whatever I could find. And although the public interest has broadened as the years have passed, it became apparent to me a few years ago that much more needed to be said, and it was important terribly important that we were making much more noise. Unsure of what to do to reach more people, I decided to try my hand, or should I say more correctly, my voice, at podcasting. And what you're listening to now is the result of those efforts. There appeared to be a great silence about the climate crisis, and this podcast is an effort by me to increase the volume of my voice, and so help end that silence. Fortunately, it was not as silent as I had thought, as many other podcasts were beavering away and were attempting to alert the world to the climate crisis. And several months ago, I was found, so to speak, by Mark Spencer from the Climactic Collective. Music for this podcast comes courtesy of Music for a Warming World, a Melbourne-based group, and you'll find a link to that group in the episode notes. I trust you'll enjoy this episode, and if you do, please feel free to share it with your friends. Charlie, a sheep farmer from Crookwell, about an hour north of Canberra on the New South Wales Tablelands, has been a guest on Climate Conversations earlier as he hosts a wind farm on his property. When I first got to speak to Charlie, the reception wasn't great, so he had to uh, move on to another spot. The first minute or so of this episode is a little scratchy, but Charlie, being a wonderful enthusiast of wind farms, he can see one of the turbines from his kitchen window. I thought it was worth leaving in there so you could soak up some of his enthusiasm, and maybe that will help dispel some of the myths that surround wind farms. How are your wind turbines going, Charlie?
1: Oh, they're fantastic. They're fantastic. They're... They're just extraordinary. I, I think they're in my opinion they're majestic and they they're, they're, so, they're so efficient. Even on a day when you think there's no wind, they still turn because they're so high.
0: So has it been windy up there lately or not?
1: It, it's, it's just been constantly windy actually for oh well pretty much ever, but it's the winds it's one of the forecasts for climate change that the wind's going to get more consistent and stronger because the weather systems are so disparate and the like winds just air moving from a low pressure to a, a high pressure to a low
0: pressure. So did you have any trouble with the fires up that way Charlie?
1: No, not where we are. It's been it, it's since the fires so when was that January December 2019 yeah, January yeah. 2020 um, when it started raining which put out the fires and uh, ended the drought. In early 2020, just before the pandemic, it it hasn't stopped raining where where I live. Really? It's been the wettest. We've got 120 years of rainfall records, Mm. and it's been the wettest two years in a row in all of that time.
0: Oh, really? Gee.
1: Yeah, by by some margin. So.
0: But you're in hilly country there, so flooding wouldn't be a problem necessarily, would it?
1: Um, no, it's, it, it, we don't get, um, you know, broad floods, yeah. but we get, we get, um, uh, the ground gets really, really wet yeah. and it is as it is now. It's boggy and, and yeah, it's really hard to get around. We haven't been able to drive a vehicle around our farm for probably oh, really? two years yeah. now. Yep. And, uh, in addition to that, there's, there's a, su- a substantial amount of, damage to infrastructure across rivers and, um, yeah, it's just, it's endless, it's ongoing.
0: And, it's, and this um, is all more evidence of climate change, isn't it, which is really hard to convince people about.
1: I think people are starting to wake up to it, um, even politically, and, and I think it's actually the, the next drought when it happens, very intense. And and I don't know when we're going to head into that drought, but when when we do, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be intense. And God knows,
0: it, it's going to be bigger than anything we've had yeah, before. Yeah, it's all a bit alarming, isn't it? That people don't seem to treat it seriously at all. But
1: um, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, and, and, and despite the lack of leadership from the federal government. The, the states are all really really aggressively attacking the particularly the energy yeah. transition mm. issue because they have to because they they understand that the the whole system is going to fall over if we don't do something about it and I mean the, the the media last week about the price of electricity doubling over the last six months uh, the whole I don't sure if you've seen that but the wholesale price of electricity has doubled. And that's because, and, and this is what the analyst said, it's not me saying this, the main reason for that is not what's happening in in the Ukraine, which is horrible, mm. horrific. It's because the the price of coal has gone up and also coal-fired generation has become really expensive. Guess what? We were <laughs> told that
0: 25 years ago. We were, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so the, the states particularly, it's really good that New South Wales are so aggressive and, and it's not just the Liberal Party and the Coalition in New South Wales. It's, it's not just bipartisan. It's multi-partisan. Every political party in New South Wales has, has adopted and welcomed the energy initiative, I think it's called a roadmap, that Matt Keynes introduced in New South Wales.
0: Charlie, tell me about um, your calling for certainty on your t- 2050 emissions reduction target. What does that mean?
1: That means exactly what, what it says. We, we just need certainty on the fact that we are, as a country, committing to net zero emissions by 2050. Exactly that. And, and we live in this uh, society that we've created where the market rules and the market hates uncertainty. So the, the uncertainty that's been raised by individuals in the political world over the fact that we may or may not be committed to that net zero by 2050 target the market reacts to that and that increases the the cost of everything that you do in that space so that increases the cost of uh, insurance it increases the cost of energy and increases the cost of uh, finance it's just it's quite bizarre that we've set this target it's been committed to by the all of the government and then all of a sudden during election campaign, people stand up and say, well, it's actually not real or it's not, um, not a certain target.
0: So I, about- so I was going to ask you about the undermining. So can you give me an example of that?
1: Um, there's been lots of people, mostly within the National Party, but also other parties as well, who have said, well, you know, it's not really a hundred percent certain target. There's a bit of wriggle room, I think. One person said. I the, yeah,
0: I heard the wriggle room comment. That's yeah.
1: just quite bizarre. It's like saying, well, we've got a, a target of scoring twenty-five points or whatever it is in, you know, in, in football parlance. But mm. if we if, if we get to twenty-three or something, it's okay. It's ridiculous. You lose the game if unless you get twenty-five points. So, um. The, the worst part of that is if we're committing to net zero by 2050, which is absolutely minimal, I think, then as a country, we need to get on with it this decade. What happens between now and 2030, which is only, what, seven and a half, um, seven and a half years, yeah, is critical to how we're looking in 2050.
0: I was going to say, Charlie, some, lots of people say that uh, Twenty fifty is just like kicking the can down the road. Is that how do you feel about that?
1: Despite the fact that we do have this target, and it's not an aspiration, it is a target from the federal government. They committed to it under the um, the climate conference in Glasgow. There's no plan that I see that makes any sense at all to to achieve that target. So there needs to be um, a plan that. Sets out the strategy and the techniques and the technologies or whatever it is that we're going to use to get to that
0: target. Have you got any suggestions on what the plan should be?
1: Well, the first two things that we need to look at are energy in burning fossil fuels to generate electricity in Australia and transport. The amount of fuel, oil, that's burnt in in cars and trucks in Australia, both of those issues are are, are really easy to solve. The market is already solving the energy one, but there's no plan to, you know, structure the transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. So the market's doing that, but it's, if we have a plan, then it's a smooth ride. If we don't have a plan, it's going to be a really rough ride, and people are going to get burnt along the way. Well, the same with transport. The issue with transport is more than just climate change. It's about energy security. And we saw the price of fuel go through the roof, go well over $2 a litre. I think it was $2.20 a litre or something. That was due to the insecurity of the fuel supply systems that we have in this country because that was sparked by the war in the Ukraine, the horrible war in the Ukraine.
0: So, what should the what should the farmers be doing about this, Charlie?
1: Farmers are already doing lots about it as in individually, and we're as farmers for climate action. We're helping people along that path. They're uh, changing their farming systems. They're looking at putting in solar pumping systems, for instance, or solar electrical systems on their farms, rather than using um, grid electricity, electricity from the grid. And they're also looking at and being paid now under a a trial for biodiversity, creating really good biodiversity outcomes on their farms, but also um, for for storing carbon on their farms in trees and grass on their farms.
0: There was some controversy about that just recently. wasn't about storing carbon on their farms.
1: There was a lot of controversy about
0: that. So what went wrong there, Charlie?
1: Um, According to the to uh, Andrew McIntosh, it was from the ANU who highlighted the um, uh, the, the, the lack of um, surety in our carbon markets. According to him, it's all a bit of a scam. Now that's just not good enough. We need to know how in how how much integrity is in our carbon trading markets. Um, with, with with urgency not some urgency with a lot of urgency because if we're going to start trading carbon australian carbon credit units and those units are not uh, have no integrity then we're allowing fossil fuel companies to buy carbon offsets that are not genuine so we're not solving anything in relation to the climate and we're not achieving any outcomes that farmers can can pin their you know, their future farming plans and systems on into
0: the future. So what should people do on May 21 at the federal election?
1: Um, they have to, in my opinion, it should, this election should be all about two things. It should be about integrity, and we just talked about that in relation to, well, in relation to the net zero emissions target, but also in relation to carbon trading and the carbon market but also it needs to be, and it must be, about climate. It must be about getting over this endless climate war that we're having in Australia, and I think we're getting close to the end of those wars, and adopting targets and and actions to address climate change that will be so beneficial to farmers and regional Australians, particularly in the rollout of, of renewable energy. So... I'm not going to tell people who they should vote for, but they need to understand that this vote, this election is critical, not just to the future of farming and um, the Australian democratic system, but probably to the, to the planet as a whole. If we can lead uh, Asia in exporting coal and gas, which we do now, we also uh, uh, we, we, we have a, a, a massive opportunity to lead Asia in generating clean energy, renewable energy, zero emissions energy, and exporting that energy to Asia, either as hydrogen, as ammonia, or in undersea cable. And there's projects that are... There's people that are lining up to invest their own personal money, not taxpayers' money, their own private money, in that initiative. People like Andrew Forrest, people like Mike Cannon-Brooks, and lots of others, and those people are not wealthy by chance. They're wealthy because they're smart business people. So we need to follow their lead. It's real. It's it's just a shame that we're not creating an environment that would encourage more people to become involved in this massive opportunity that Australia is being presented with on a plate.
0: Are candidates in the forthcoming election listening to what you guys are saying?
1: Um, parties and politicians across the board are listening to us. In fact, some of them are Reaching out to us, to farmers for climate action, to to get some guidance or um, get our opinion on climate policy, on energy policy, on how we should be um, managing farms, on, on you know on the carbon trading policy. That's not just the conservative politicians or the labor politicians, politicians of all stripes, labor, greens, um, national party, liberal party probably with the exception of One Nation, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Um, if, if their opinion's based on fact, I have no problem with a difference of opinion. But if their opinion is based on a myth or a lie, then I have a real problem with that.
0: What would you like to see as an outcome to the election?
1: Um, a massive increase in the public trust of, of politicians in Australia. And however that happens, I, I don't care how that happens. But the disillusionment and the disaffected comments that I hear from everyday Australians, who I wouldn't have thought would even question the political system, pretty much every day I hear people saying, "I'm I'm over this. I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I don't like the system that we're currently involved with."
0: What's ahead for Farmers for Climate Action?
1: Well, we're we're on a really rapid growth path at the moment, Robert, and I think that's a – we've gone from 40-odd people five or six years ago to more than 7,000 farmers now that have signed up and are concerned about climate change, and they want to see aggressive action to address the climate challenge this decade, so between now and 2030. Um, We're managing that growth. It's really quite challenging. As the chair of Farmers for Climate Action, most of our most of my challenges are about managing that growth and making sure that our systems are are in place, which I'm confident they are, to to you know make sure that we grow sustainably, but also to service the the amount of inquiry we're getting that we spoke about earlier. And I don't even if we solve the climate crisis tomorrow, there's going to be an ongoing need for the advocacy work and the uh, extension work that we do about, you know, through our Climate Smart programs, through our um, fellowship programs, through our master's, um, you know, p- teaching people the, the facts about the weather systems that are coming, and, but, but also giving them then information that they can use to get a maximum uh, level of resilience on their own farms both individually and collectively as, as small groups across the country so that they can be in a really as strong a position as possible to, to manage the climate challenge that's coming. Did you know that in Pakistan and Turkey right now in the in the spring, not in the middle of summer, they're experiencing record temperatures, 40 degree plus temperatures? <laughs> I read
0: that this morning.
1: That's extraordinary. And yet we're still, we had this inane debate about, Whether we're going to commit to 2050 or not, I'm over it, Robert.
0: I'm pretty much with you, Charlie. Is there something else you'd like to say about uh, 2050 target or anything else, Charlie, for that matter?
1: Well, I just want to emphasise again the fact that what happens in 2050 will be dictated by what happens between now and 2030. If we don't do something between now and 2030, to address the climate challenge which seems to be the, the sort of pattern um, it'll be too late it won't matter what we do after 2030 if we let the rabbit out of the cage now it'll rabbits breed and there'll be so many rabbits after 2030 it'll be impossible to put them all back in the cage
0: yeah thanks Charlie I appreciate the chat the interview had ended and I'd said thanks Charlie and I'd said goodbye but we kept talking
1: Anybody that has a block of land and grows food for, con- for consumption, we have, it doesn't matter how big it is, in my opinion, is a farmer. And food security, we didn't even mention that, but food security is becoming a real issue in this country.
0: Yeah, what, what do you say about things like um, David Littleproud says that we grow enough food for 75 million people or something?
1: Um, I'd ask David Littleproud to go and have a look at the supermarket shelves Across regional Australia, because they're not they're never full anymore, and the price of particularly vegetables after the floods in through the northern New South Wales Sydney region, the price of vegetables has just gone through the roof, as in doubled or more than double tripled. Capsicums were fourteen dollars a kilo or something without getting into an Albanese moment. Um, anything that cucumbers I think were seven or eight dollars a kilo, so that that's not. Doubling—that's probably quadrupling in price, and that's because of supply and demand. The demand is the same, but the supply is dried up because a lot of the vegetables that would have been coming on the market now were, were washed away or, or drowned.
0: And all that's a byproduct of climate change, in my view. Is that right, Charlie?
1: It's definitely climate change is definitely turbocharged the speed that we've we've reached the destination, and it, it, it's not like we've reached this destination and we've stopped. We've reached this destination and we're going to go on into the future. Unless we turn it around, we're going to go over the cliff. That's pretty hard language to, to listen to and to, to, to say, but it's true.
0: The it only reflects what I just heard this morning from P- Professor David Caroli, the retired Professor David Carolli, so He was sort of saying the, the same sort, not the same words, but the same things effectively. So,
1: so it's not all doom and gloom we always talk about opportunities and there's such huge opportunities, not just for farmers, but for regional communities generally.
0: Talking about opportunities, what what do you see as the opportunities for farmers?
1: Um, most particularly the two that we spoke about, hosting renewable energy, not just individual farmers, but also the communities where they live. And the second one was trading creating, um, in creating in um, real carbon credits by uh, biodiversity offsets and carbon offsets, creating carbon units that can be traded in the market.
0: Again, thanks, Charlie. You'll find a link to the uh, Farmers for Climate Action press release or media story, Farmers Deserve Certainty on Net Zero Target, in the show notes. There'll also be a link to the Farmers for Climate Action website. Where you'll find lots of information about what farmers are doing to counteract the climate crisis. Climate Conversations is published with the support of the Mark Spencer published Climactic Collective. And it's just one of more than 20 podcasts making up that collective. More about the collective and the associated podcasts can be found at climactic.fm. Music for Climate Conversations is from the Melbourne-based group Music for a Warming World. You can find a link to that group in the episode notes. Responsibility for Climate Conversations rests with me. But you could help with the questions. And if there is something specific that needs addressing, but the question is not being asked of whom it should be asked, please make a suggestion and send it to number 7 at icloud.com. Earlier episodes of Climate Conversations can be found at the Climactic website. Simply search for climactic.fm. Go to the Climate Conversations artwork, click on that, and there you will find all the earlier episodes. Beyond that, in all this climate chaos, remember just a few things. Put your faith in genuine climate science. Also, action is the best antidote to despair. And that, I must add, is one of the drivers of this podcast. And remember, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. That ends this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company, and until we talk again, please take care.